Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Anna Bogutska. And I'm Lillian Crawford. On the show this week, the tables turn on a luxury yacht when it enters the Triangle of Sadness. Henry Selleck and Jordan Peele create a stop-motion nightmare in Wendell and Wilde. And on Film Club, Woody Harrelson strikes out in Kingpin. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Anna and Lillian, very excited to have you both on. And yes, what a lovely surprise that the two of you hadn't met before. You kind of seem to be in like such similar circles of such smart women who engage with like art house and, and, you know, but still have quite eclectic tastes. So this is like, for me, a real meeting of the minds. (laughs) Love to be described as a woman with eclectic taste. It is the best descriptor. Wow. (laughs) But we are we are kind of now at the peak of spooky season. Um, Halloween is but a couple of days away. Um, have you guys had any highlights? Not really. <laughs> I I did a, I did a podcast yesterday where I got to talk about um, the lure, the um, Agnieszka Straczynska mm. film, um, which I absolutely love. I had chosen it to talk about, so that's. Yeah, that's one I've been been thinking about. I watched some some bad ones as well. I watched Scary Movie for the first time, hated that, and Insidious for the first time, hated that. So I'm not a big horror oh, fan. No. I wish I was more of a horror fan than I am. The lure is wonderful, though. It's you know, there's not enough mermaid movies and there's not enough mermaid horror movies specifically. I love it deeply and talk about it whenever I can. I think we're we're screening it as part of the In Dreams Are Monsters season at the BFI in December. Amazing, I believe. <laughs> I would. Yeah, I've never be seen it on the big screen. <laughs> I'm dying to see it on the big screen. Yeah, no, I was I was saying yesterday that it needs to be seen in a cinema with an audience. So I mm. I will definitely be there. Yeah, I think if anything could convert you more into the horror world, uh, Lillian, it would be the In Dreams and Monsters season yeah. that Anna's doing. Because, I mean, have you ever seen Ganja and Hess? I would think that would be really up your street. No, I haven't. So that's definitely one that I know I need to see. Yeah, that's one that we talked about on the Final Girls podcast, didn't we, Layla? Yeah, and I'm, I've am i also never seen it on the big screen and, and I'm going to go and see it. Basically, in Dreams and Monsters, which is this really massive three-month season that's going on at the BFI, but also around the UK, basically from now until the end of the year, it I'm just going to be living at the BFI South Bank for the foreseeable. Because even though I've seen all of these films, 
a lot of them I've never seen on the big screen. And there is something about, especially with films like Ganja and Hess, films like The Lure or Let's Care Jessica to Death. Like they're so beautiful as well. And you just want to be enveloped by them. So I hope that, you know, and it they're also sort of challenging our idea of horror like people will expect something like insidious or the conjuring or you know even the the old you know old time classics like the exorcist and whatnot but it's these films like you know the ones that we're talking about that really sort of take you in and they seep under your skin and they live there for a long time after you leave the cinema or even for years you know i just want to you know traumatize people for the next few months that's my goal as a programmer <laughs> well what noble work you are doing but I, I also i wonder if there was anything more recent i saw you tweeting about barbarian so yeah. you know there, there is some life it. in the old gal yet in terms of horror oh my god i mean i've got horror films coming out of the kazoo this month like oh, i love barbarian i think that was genuinely one of the most joyous you know weird word choice but still horror experiences i've had this year where i watched her on the link and i introduced the screening of it last night and it's just fun it's just fun there is no massive pretentious around it it's just solid rollicking filmmaker filmmaking so it knows what we expect from a horror film like that and it gives us that but it also upends it a little bit when it needs to and it's it's just a good old time i think i'm gonna i really can't wait to see it again with a proper audience and and kind of enjoy the the twists and the bumps of it because I did, I just watched it by myself in a link and I still was completely, you know, left my notebook after about half an hour and decided it's like, I'm not going to need this. I just want to be in this film and enjoy the ride. High praise indeed. I mean, I would personally, my my highlight has been uh, Guillermo del Toro's um, Cabinet of Curiosities. I've, uh, you mm-hmm. know, re- I mean, I'm a huge, huge Twilight Zone fan and, you know, I'm slightly cynical when it comes to any anthology series that would dare to kind of replicate what Rod Serling did but yeah you know Guillermo doesn't miss he really managed to do exactly what an anthology series is supposed to do it is strange that it hasn't really been done right until just now I mean you know as I love the Twilight Zone. I love the, you know, the Hitchcock series. I also love the Spanish equivalent of the Twilight Zone is this series that went on in the 60s and has then been kind of remade quite recently called Historias para no dormir, which in rough translation means like stories that won't let you sleep, which is clunky, but that's what it means. It's just a perfect platform for for filmmakers to go absolutely hog wild with permission and with budget. I absolutely loved it. And kind of horror films that aren't pretending to be something else, mm-hmm. <laughs> like not being caught up in messaging, just being genuinely gross and scary and stressful and, and beautiful throughout. But yeah, we should move on to another type of horror, that of class. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. A 
couple of models are invited for a luxury cruise with a rogues gallery of super-rich passengers and an idiosyncratic Mark's quoting captain. At first, all seems to be Instagram perfect, but a storm is brewing and the cruise ends in catastrophe. In Triangle of Sadness, a couple of models are invited for a luxury cruise with a rogues gallery of super-rich passengers and an idiosyncratic Mark's quoting captain. At first, all appears to be Instagram perfect, but a storm is brewing and the cruise ends in catastrophe. So Lillian, I'll come to you first. So this is Ruben Ostland's second Palm d'Or was one for Triangle of Sadness. Do you feel that, that it was a worthy winner? You know, you always ask me these questions and I just sort of bluntly say no as the answer. And again, unfortunately, this is very much a blunt no. We're talking about horrifying films and films that sort of fill us with dread. Ruben Ostland is perhaps the director who is most capable of doing that for me. The Square, which um, is the film that won his last Palm d'Or, is this interminable mess of incredibly shallow attempt at satire of, of the art world. And this is, as you say, a sort of attempt to take down um, influencer culture. The, the the title in French is Son Futur. So I think that he's clearly trying to claim that there is a, a shallowness or a hollowness to, to that kind of culture and, and to the wealthy elite at large. And it just ends up completely falling flat. This is another... 149 minute film that just feels like it goes on forever and I hated it I I, I love with you that I, I honestly can never guess which way <laughs> it's gonna go <laughs> but Anna you, you saw this in Cannes so you've been mm. you know sitting with this for a while have, have your feelings about it changed at all? Not really I mean I have to I have to admit that actually contrary to Lillian it went by really quickly for me I think perhaps the setting is part of that. I do remember quite vividly thinking as I was sitting in this, you know, glorious, pretentious can setting. And as I was watching a extremely long, maybe 10 minute long vomiting scene and laughing because I do, I will admit, have the sense of humor of a 15 year old boy. Um, <laughs> it was working for me and also the contradiction of watching something that seemed to be a Ferrelli movies version of an art house film in a setting like that. Like I kept looking around myself at all these critics and who were absolutely losing their minds laughing as well and thinking wow this is something else like is this a satire of the setting as well is this a him pointing the finger at us being so you know high-minded and highbrow and art house with their little moleskill notebooks open up on our laps taking notes about you know which film's going to win the palm d'Or, and we're just giggling at a 10 minute vom scene so that context of that viewing really elevated my enjoyment of the film i don't think the it's a particularly deep film in exactly the ways that Lillian was describing. But I also don't think I need it to be. I think it is, the high-minded critique of it is almost unnecessary. I think it almost takes away from the film. I think it has one note and it plays that note very well. It's funny, but the joke is always quite simple. And I kind of like that about Oslin in a way that the reception of him, the double palm door win everything around his career has been so glossy and surrounded by the highest levels of, of art house prizes and support. And at the same time, I find his films to be deceptively simple. And I like that about them. I don't need, uh, sometimes with films like this, 17 different layers of meaning. I think, you know, he 
explores the things that he wants very clearly very openly and then moves on very quickly i do and this might be you know extra textual but i do find it quite funny that he's so open about his next projects as he's talking about his current project so you can almost see how his creative process works even while you know he's on the promotional tour for the current one i i think it's interesting hearing you say that and the, particularly about the setting in which it's seen because when i was i was watching it on a screener it's i think the issue that i really take with him is that he is producing films which are sort of it's it's the production of films which attempt to socialist critique within the machine that it's supposedly critiquing it's like it feels incredibly contradictory and and hypocritical to me and I think that when I was watching this film, I was, I was thinking that it was, it's basically the same thing as what Adam McKay does in his films. Adam McKay sort of produces them within like that, that kind of blockbuster Hollywood mode and they, and the and films come out through Netflix. Or, and I feel that there's, there's a certain contradiction and that, that lends to the shallowness of those films. Whereas Erston's films are sort of can and then filtering through to sort of, I don't know, middle-aged people in a curzon sipping red wine and watching this film. And I just think that, oh, yes, they're all having a wonderful time, but I don't think that it's actually going to achieve anything. And when you set up a film to be that kind of critique and to want it to have a socialist message, supposedly, I mean, maybe I've complete, maybe he doesn't want that. Maybe he, maybe you're right and says that, that he doesn't actually put any thought into his films at all. Um, that it kind of fails for me as what it's set up to do. Yeah, that's quite interesting because I wonder, I don't think he fails. I think he achieves exactly what he sets out to do. I do, I'm very intrigued by kind of the, this idea that you're talking about of the purpose of the film, whether it is actually the purpose of it is to contain or spread sort of a socialist message. And if seeing it from that lens, I would be furious at it as well. Maybe the difference is that I kind of don't see it as that. I kind of see it as a, as a, as a, not so much even as a satire, but almost as a farce of, of kind of this influencer world of beauty, of fashion, of the commodity of that. And it does work for me as a, as a comedy. I don't, I've, Perhaps this is the way that I was looking at it. I wasn't looking at it as a as a socialist message. And I do think that actually the comparison to Adam McKay is so spot on. And Adam McKay's films very often do irritate me precisely because of that. But perhaps because the Hollywood machine is just so much more entrenched in, you know, capitalism and publicity and that whole like the machine and the industry of movie making. Whether it's for better or worse, Oslin, I still think of him as, you know, the European tradition of filmmaking, which by contrast to Hollywood has all, well, has always defined itself as contrasting to Hollywood and, you know, every single country and all the collaborations and co-productions and, you know, the, the, the public support as well that goes into filmmaking in Europe kind of always sets itself apart. So the machines are different. And because of that, I kind of look at both of these filmmakers and their, their attempts you know, social or satires to be kind of very, very different. Like, I don't feel like Oslan is as irritating because he doesn't work within the same machine. That's interesting. I, I mean, I definitely come much closer to the way you feel about it, Anna. But yeah, for me, I didn't really get supposed to have any like socialist sense. Um, if anything, I was kind of most reminded by like uh, Michelle Franco's New Order, that, that like the heart of this film is really nihilistic and really, really bleak. And that kind of when the tables are turned, kind of, you know, s- suffering has 
you know, makes no, sorry, what is the phrase? Suffering ennobles no man. Sorry, something my grandfather used to say, and I, I wanted to get it right. But yeah, there is this idea of given the opportunity for power, everybody is immediately corrupted by it. And like, there is, it's a very, very dark conclusion that we're left with. But yeah, specifically given that we're doing two Woody Harrelson films this week, uh, what did you think of Woody Harrelson's performance in this as our kind of Marxist captain? I I don't think I like Woody Harrelson. I mean, may, maybe that's because my, my mother always says that she hates Woody Harrelson, so I was just sort of raised to believe that he was one of those actors that you don't like. Um, I think I first saw him in The Hunger Games. That's probably my introduction to Mr. Harrelson. His performance here is, it, it's, it's one of those interesting sort of what's the word I'm trying to look for it's 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 remind I always come back to sort of Le Mipoli, um Goddard's film where you just sort of have like a random Hollywood actor like Jack Palance in that film who just sort of stands there and is is representing a certain type of character and actor with the just by being who they are I mean it's it's impossible with someone like Woody Harrelson for them not to just sort of be Woody Harrelson within this film I'm not sure what person's trying to say with that he's not in it very much um is is what i will say and i think that it's interesting you saying about new order because i'm now thinking about that film where it's it's sort of like it's set up in a in a way where we're sort of having fun and we want to see these people suffer and then there's still another hour of film after we lose Woody Harrison, I mean, sorry, spoilers, I guess. But there's, there's a point. It's in the trailer. There's a point where the the um, the ship sort of goes down and they they get stranded on an island, and we're sort of left there for an hour without any of the charisma that perhaps Woody Harrelson is supposedly bringing to this film. And we have these these incredibly shallow, I keep using that word because it's the word that I keep thinking of in relation to this film, um, characters who are really quite boring to spend time with. I mean, that was that was something I was going to, to, to ask you is, did, did you not feel that for that last hour of film that it just completely lost anything that it had within the prior 90 minutes of, of the film? I mean, I the last hour was my favourite hour. So, um, <laughs> kind of quite the opposite. There, there is a scene involving a donkey, which um, both myself and my husband watching it were in tears, laughing um, <laughs> so hard. But you know, it's interesting that you have that view of Woody Harrelson because I wonder whether that's a generational thing. Because mm. I came to him through Cheers, and then it's Natural Born Killers, and so for me, he's just. I love that there's no such thing as a typical Woody Harrelson film. Anna, are you a fan of his? Absolutely, which is why I was shocked when Lillian <laughs> outed herself as not being a Woody Harrelson fan. I didn't know that that could exist. <laughs> I was I was trying to think of the first time I kind of became aware of him. And I think it might have been Natural Born Killers and an indecent proposal. He's just so wildly different in all of his roles, especially sort of in the 90s, in the early 2000s, when he had his heyday. The fact that he is a romantic or sexual lead sometimes and this complete stoner dude other times and can be a completely unhinged persona and killer in different roles. I quite like him because I like all of those personas. I think there's such a an underlying stoner bro appeal to him underneath every single one of his roles that he's become sort of the Woody Harrelson type in in his later in the latter part of his career and I think in this film it kind of taps into that no this sort of completely parodic type of character that is tapping into exactly what you would expect Woody Harrelson to do or even be like not necessarily in his personal life but just as a 
movie persona. And, you know, again, the joke is it's quite simple. A Russian capitalist and an American socialist kind of battling it out over copious amounts of alcohol. We don't need more. It's it's a skit. It's funny. It works because both of those characters are kind of exaggerated versions of types. They're not really characters. They're types of people. These like very stereotypical ideas that we get of certain people, basically defining them by either their political uh, allegiance or their nationality. And that's like it worked for me. That was enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just want to take a moment to mention Charlie Dean, who plays Yaya, who's a kind mm. of very glamorous influence in this. And, you know, I was watching this feeling that this was a really star making turn for someone. And, you know, tragically, she passed away um, a, a couple of months ago because of an illness. And, and it, it is it makes it all the kind of more devastating having watched this because I, I think she was you know, a real talent. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, she's by far the most compelling part of the film. She's very much sort of at the centre of it. Yeah, mm. it's a real tragedy that we won't get to see her do more things. We should get some scores on this before we uh, move on to something a little spookier. Lillian, do you want to start? <laughs> in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect. Yeah, it's rather boring at this point, isn't it? It's quite obvious. Um, I think I think a two um, in anticipation, as I say, the, the Square and Erston's other films just sort of grate on me in a way that I can't quite explain. It's very visceral. I mean, I suppose that's partly what he wants to do. The vomit scene, as you say, is, is this incredibly visceral thing, but I can imagine that other people probably find that kind of thing funny. I just don't. I find it repulsive. Um, so my enjoyment is a one. I, I didn't laugh once during this film. Um, I was angry and then I was bored. And that was pretty much my um, engagement level with it. And then in retrospect one, I think this is just the kind of filmmaking that should absolutely cease to exist. Well, let's hope for Austin that you are not on the jury when he tries to get a third palm door. Uh, Anna, what about you? I would say a three, a five for enjoyment and a four in retrospect. I like his work, but I wouldn't call myself a, an Austin head or a super fan. So I had, I was looking forward to it and I did greatly enjoy it on, on my first watch. Perhaps like I explained earlier, enhanced by the setting and the contradiction of the setting and the the humour of the film. Anna, you and I are perfectly in sync. Yeah, three coming into it. Um, I find most of Austin's films to be far too long, uh, but always have a couple of scenes, like in the square, the scene with the monkey, that kind of do draw me in and find um, interesting. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know what it says about me, Lillian, that maybe I'm just pure, but I just thought it was really bloody funny. So I was at a five at enjoyment. And then, yeah, maybe somewhere between a three and a four in retrospect. I don't know that, like, satirically it had anything particularly interesting to say, but maybe that's kind of judging it by a measure that isn't actually what Ostland is trying to achieve. Next up, Wendell and Wilde. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Two demon brothers enlist the aid of Cat Elliot, a tough teen with a load of guilt to summon them to the land of the living. But what Cat demands in return leads to a brilliantly bizarre and comedic adventure like no other. So Anna, I've got to assume that you are a fan of Henry Selleck. He was kind of the formative person for so many young horror fans. I wish I could say that he was my formative person, but he wasn't. However, when I was looking back, I was like, why does this feel familiar watching this film? Felt a familiar. I will say, and perhaps this, I don't know, undoes my credibility. I was never a massive Nightmare Before Christmas stan. I know that every one of my generation just had all the swag, all the merchandise, and it became a personality trait, I think, for like a whole generation of young goths or emos. However, Guilty I as absolutely <laughs> love James and the Darren Peach. I watched it as a child and I still remember the creepiness and the magic of it. And I think it got perhaps because I grew up reading, well, I was reading a lot, but I really loved Roald Dahl's books growing up. I remember seeing that film for the first time and I remember thinking, oh, this is what it felt like to read this book as well. And I'd never experienced a sense of an adaptation capturing the images that I had created in my head whilst reading a book. And then, you know, as a as the preeminent Brendan Fraser scholar, I absolutely love Monkey Bone and it deserves to be revisited. But I have to say, I had no idea this film was coming out. I kind of had no expectation about it. And it was you, Layla, who kind of said, there should be more fanfare about this. I will say, though, and I'm sort of disappointing myself, I found it, Wendelin Wilde, to be a little bit of a slog. It's a very tight film. It's not overly long. But I found myself stopping and starting several times. I couldn't, perhaps because I'm older, perhaps because I'm more cynical, but I found it to be just a succession of skits that echoed the best of Key and Peele, who I'm absolutely a fan of as a comedic duo, as comedians, as artists. And there just wasn't, the heart of it was just sort of missing or a bit too obvious even. And even though the premise on on the surface is just this perfect combination of creepiness and teenagehood and grief and regret and being a bit in your face as you would be as a young punk, I just never really reached those levels of emotion that perhaps I was expecting from it based on James and Jan Peach and Coraline. 
Lillian, what about you? Do you have much affection coming into this? I know controversially you're not a big Jordan Peele fan, but um, you feel more warmly about Henry Selleck. I, I avoid talking about Jordan Peele. No one needs to hear that I don't like Jordan Peele films. It's a personal thing. It's, it's not necessarily his fault. But I am a massive Henry Selleck fan. I grew up on Coraline and rewatches of James and the Giant Peach and Nightmare Before Christmas and I've always loved those films and the style of stop motion that Henry Selleck brings and what I really love about his animation in this film is that he's using the same techniques that he was using on Coraline back in 2009 and well prior to that it was released in 2009 which gives it this kind of messy almost like the kind of stunted stop motion that you might make as a child with digital cameras and so on that it, it fit and you can see the lines on the puppets I think that Selig has said that he he was concerned that stop motion was becoming too much like CG animation and having seen Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio as part of LFF I the animation that is gorgeous but it is it is quite a bit smoother I think this is this is a much more rough and ready style of stop motion than than you do see in those sort of more recent stop motion films I agree totally with with Anna that perhaps I mean maybe maybe it's because I'm not a child anymore that certain certain parts of the humor just sort of I, I mean, I, I like to think of this as sort of neurotypical humour. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe that's my, also my issue with, with, with um, Triangle of Sadness is that things that most people find funny, I can just completely <laughs> um, not get. So I don't really get Key and Peele as, as humour. I'm not a big fan of sort of improv or, or sketch comedy. So I think that whereas those previous films that Selleck had made were all based on, you know, Neil Gaiman, Tim Burton's stories and, 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 and Roald Dahl. I think that here you really can feel that kind of sketch show approach that Jordan Peele is bringing to this film that he's written with, with Henry Selleck that I think pulled away from the quite compelling storyline at, at the heart of it. I, I liked Kat, the, the central character, and um, I thought she was really interesting. And as you say, the premise about, about sort of orphan trying to bring their parents back from the dead is, is a great one and a timeless one and one that could work really well. But I just kept getting pulled out of it by these sort of very childish flights of comedy that, that really sort of let it down for me, I think. Yeah, um, I did watch it with a child. Um, I watched it with my lovely daughter, Zinnia, who's six. And um, much like my parents before me, I let see things that are probably far too dark um, for for a child that age. But yeah, we're doing a little bit of a Henry Selleck season. We did Coraline and Nightmare Before, Before Christmas and now this. And I, and I promised I'd put her input into it. But yeah, she thought it was wonderful. She absolutely adored Little Cat. But she asked a huge amount of questions in the way that she didn't when we watched Coraline and Nightmare Before Christmas. James and the Giant Peach is up next. But Yes. And I think when you do have that kind of child questioning you of like, well, what is happening? And who do people want? And all of this. And I was just like, I don't know, Zinnia, mass incarceration is bad. That's like, (laughs) but yeah, there was a level of kind of incoherence to it that was a little disappointing. I did genuinely find it quite hard to follow. And I don't know that just sort of that 
delightful Jordan Peele and uh, Keegan-Michael Key thing, which, you know, a duo that I really enjoy, fully made up for the fact that I, I, I didn't know what I was kind of grasping onto. Yeah, I mean, I'm mostly interested in Zinnia's take on this film because I think she's the target audience as opposed mm. to us three. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> I do find that quite interesting, the fact that she, via the questions, kind of found them in a way hard to follow because that's what we all seem to agree on, is that there was something missing that kept pulling us all out from the film. And I kind of have to agree with Lillian here. As much as I love Key and Peele as a duo, and as much as I have a puerile sense of humor, I did not laugh once. And uh, I agree with you that the skits, the cutaway to the skits, kept pulling me out because it almost seemed like Key and Peele doing skits for children, which is great, but it does not transcend to that level of oh this is a this is a children's film that is also working for adults i don't think that Mm. this actually works for adults which does not mean i don't think it's a bad film it just means that perhaps we're not the audience Mm. for it yeah and i I, it's interesting because i kept thinking about toy story 4 where key and pill sort of have these these moments as a chick and a bunny where it really is very much a secondary character and it sort of goes to those little skits at different points but the story is still very much focused on Woody and Buzz and whatever whereas in this film I mean it's called Wendell and Wilde it's about their characters and yet there's no arc for them really throughout the film that they they there it does feel like an excuse to sort of have these these big comedy moments that as as we've always said aren't actually that funny Whereas, whereas actually the emotional centre of the film is Kat and, and, and her story and, and her journey in a way that in, as a successor to, to James or, or to Coraline herself in, in sort of venturing into these worlds and, and discovering about sort of the, the mystical gothic powers that, that, that she's been sort of given. It sort of ends and you think, well, I would much rather have followed that story than, ha- than keep going to this strange sort of other world, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I would say that is echoed by my my brilliant six year old. That she she found what she really took from it um, was kind of the story of the grief and the parents and loss of parents. And at one point, she kind of did get a little upset and kind of shed a tear because she she thought that was so sad. But yeah, I I thought Cat also her friend Raoul was absolutely wonderful. I do yeah. As a Jordan Peele fan, it is very weird to come away from this and be like, a little bit less Peele, please. We should get some scores on this. So, Anna, what do you think in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? I'm going to go for two across the board. Only that low in anticipation because I just was not aware that this film was coming. So I didn't really have time to anticipate it. And then, yeah, as we've all described, I didn't actually enjoy the experience of watching and I kept getting pulled out and it ended up feeling like a task uh, to finish it. This might change as I think about it, but yeah, I don't think I will be doing that a lot. I'm hoping Lillian is going to get above a one. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think a four in anticipation. I certainly haven't gone down below a four Selick in the the films of his that I've I've seen before. And um, maybe there was a little bit of of concern about the fact that he'd sort of had this incredibly difficult time with Disney on a film called The Shadow King, which is supposed to use sort of this silhouette animation, which there is some of in here. And it's nice to see that. And looking at it visually, that, that sort of sustained my enjoyment rate at a three, I would say. And then in retrospect, it's, it's a two that I, I, I think that it just doesn't really work, but there's still enough there to sort of make it interesting. And I 
I hope that it does well for Netflix and they they put more money into stop motion projects. That would be a good thing. I think I'm probably at a um, four in anticipation, three in enjoyment. Even when I was kind of taken out of the story, I found a lot of the craft of it very engaging. And yeah, maybe three in in, in retrospect. I kind of, I'm, I'm so desperate for my daughter to become a horror fan. So as adults, we can go and see slashes together. And I do think that that is at least, it effectively kind of sowed that seed into her that like being scared is fun. Up next... Film Club. Roy Munson is a young bowler with a promising career ahead of him until a disreputable colleague tricks him into participating in a con game, which ends with Roy's bowling hand crippled for life. Years later, Roy ekes out a hard scrabble existence until he discovers an Amish bowling phenomenon, Ishmael. With the help of a gangster's girlfriend, he plots to take Ishmael to the top of the bowling world. So, Lillian... The person who hates puerile comedy. <laughs> Many, have you seen a lot of Farrelly Brothers films or is, is this a, a whole new world we are introducing you to with Kingpin? <laughs> um, I had seen Dumb and Dumber, I think. Oh, I'm trying to remember. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I was quite young when I saw it. I, I remember watching it with my brother. Um, it's one of the very small handful of films that I haven't made it to the end of because I find it extremely repulsive. These are the kinds of films that I just absolutely detest and do not understand how anyone could possibly engage with this on any level. I I like the fact that Peter Farrelly now has two Oscars. That's funny. I mean, I hate Green Book, but it's it it, it is amusing to think that Kingpin is directed by a man who who has won the Best Picture Oscar. Yeah, when you told me that we were watching this, I was like, "There's a different Kingpin, right? It's not actually this one," because I couldn't quite work out the connection to the other films. But um, as we've sort of established, I don't really have. I don't really have strong feelings about Woody Harrelson. I, I think that he's quite nothing as a man. He's not terribly attractive and he's not Excuse terribly you? funny. So, okay. <laughs> Woody Harrelson is not I mean, an attractive man. He's kind of funny looking. I don't yeah. understand. I'm going to take umbrage with I that, Lillian. Say what you want about... Come, come. Yeah. Bill Murray is surely the No, no, not at all. No, excuse me. What? Woody Harrelson is hot <laughs> and Woody Harrelson fucks. That's like part of his persona. <laughs> Okay. Hell yeah. Okay. I actually started this slightly worried because we knew that we were going to do a Woody Harrelson film. I suggested People versus Larry Flint and Natural Born Killers. Mm. I was overruled. But yeah, I started this and I was just like, well, at least I get to see this incredibly hot period <laughs> yeah. in Woody Harrelson's career. He's freaking gorgeous. What are you talking about? No, no, no. no. I can't see oh this at all. Oh my God. With um, that little weird and- smile of his. He's, he's really hot. He's creepy. Um, <laughs> well, we're probably being creepy at this point. Um, but yeah, there's the, the I, I, I think I stopped making notes within the first half an hour of this film, which, which I think sort of features um, him going down on this landlady, which, and then vomiting, which is one, one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. And then he dresses up as an Amish man and then he drinks bull semen. And that was like, that was the point at which I sort of put my pen down. I was like, yeah, this film does not warrant intellectual engagement on any level. Anna, did you engage with this film intellectually on any level? Again, I do love pure humor. I don't think it always gets away with it. I do remember loving Dumb and Dumber growing up, perhaps mainly because I really love Jim Carrey, but 
I've revisited it since. It's it's funny. It works for me. It works for my 15-year-old inner boy's sense of humor. This film I'd actually never seen. I'd never seen this film before and kind of knew of it as a cold comedy. I knew of it as a Ferrari Brothers comedy. And to be honest with you, I didn't laugh once. Perhaps because I've gotten older, perhaps because there was just not enough Purell humor. I didn't really enjoy it. It was way too long. It's almost two hours long. And the gag of, you know, the, oh, how gross it is to go down on an older woman just kind of didn't hit at all. Like it just kept doing the same joke for too long. And again, there would revisit that joke and there's something about Mary only a few years later with the same actress, I believe. But we know where this all comes from. We, it's, it's cheap shots. The entire movie is cheap shots. They take cheap shots at everyone. But this one, whether as I mean, I haven't revisited there's something about Mary. I'm I'm sure it is incredibly problematic and has not aged well at all outside of all the stalking. There might be more stuff. There probably is. And Shallow Hell is truly an an evil movie, like one of the meanest films that has ever been made. But yeah, I kind of expected it to be at least funny in a in a childish, teenager kind of way. And I just didn't really find it entertaining at all. It really I think it intended to have some sort of heart and that in a way got in the way of the humor for me and I never thought I'd say this but I think there's too much ranty quaid in this movie I just did not you know enjoy that almost satirical obsession with bowling I didn't enjoy the you know the Amish are kind of low-hanging fruit for America and gross out humor but like I didn't particularly enjoy that either it just none of it seemed very witty and frankly as much as it is funny to see anyone be overly competitive over anything especially a non-sport sport like bowling it also made bowling boring like you have Woody Harrelson and Bill Murray sort of aggressively, violently competing with one another over who bowls best. And I found myself just being can I go to bed already? This is just, it's too much bowling. I kind of think I've got quite a high tolerance for like quote unquote offensive humor. Like I, I watch old Eddie Murphy stand up all the time that has aged horrendously in many respects. I kind of like a shocking gross out thing. I really dislike the Farrelly brothers. I think they're just cruel sadists. The jokes have no merit beyond kind of like shock value in the same way. It'd be almost like if you had a horror film where the only scares were jump scares because there's actually no wit or insight in any of these things that claim to be jokes. And I find it particularly egregious that at least in something like triangle of sadness we don't pretend that this has got like a warm fuzzy bow at the end but like the Farrelly brothers try to just be cruel for two hours and then at the end of it to wrap it all up as if this has some kind of warm fuzzy moral message and yes I hated Green Book I have no desire to really revisit any of their earlier films and this is just like a confirmation of the fact that I think Peter Farrelly has got a bleak heart that was also only exposed further when he was the mentor on uh, a season of uh, Project Greenlight. (laughs) So yes, um, I hope his Oscars are stolen in the middle of the night. There's not much more to say. It's pretty much it. (laughs) It's genuinely one of those films where I'm like, great, it's a motion picture. It exists. Let's move on. There's a sequel. There's going to be a second one. Seriously? What? 
Yeah, I, re- I was reading about the uh, they are making Kingpin too. God, I hope um, Woody is not involved. Roger Ebert gave this three point five out of four. It was it was very popular in nineteen ninety six. Apparently, it didn't make much money, um, but it 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 was critically well received. So I guess that's where a sequel's coming from. I mean, do you think that it is? You know, as much as we try and be objective, just a case of like modern lens that like our sensibility doesn't accept this sort of gross out cruelty in the same way yeah definitely i mean i i i find it horrifying that people ever found some of the like more misogynistic jokes in this film ever funny but i know they did because i've seen films from this period of sort of gross out comedy and 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 just how those jokes wouldn't really be sort of they just wouldn't get put in a film anymore you would hope yeah i think that we've thankfully moved on from this kind of humor also most even most egregiously i just don't think it's very good comedy filmmaking like even if you're not you know particularly sensitive to the who the jokes are aimed at and who they're making fun of, which is vile. Even if you look over that, there is something off about the pacing and the timing of it. It just does not land. Like if you put everything to one side, it's just not, the timing is off. It's overly long. It does not have any rhythm to it. And it does not, even if the, even if the humor was not as cruel as it is, it's, to there's something about it that is not tight enough to work as a comedy yeah i felt that way like i I could kind of tell when something was a joke but it just it wasn't anything that my brain could recognize Mm. as humor in a weird way oh dear lord well i mean woody harrelson you've you've done many fine things but um please don't make (laughs) kingpin 2 the campaign to block kingpin 2 starts here (laughs) (laughs) So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email Truth and Movies at TCO London or tweet us at LW Lies. Next week, Oliver Hermanus transports Kurosawa's Ikuru to London in Living. Espionage is afoot in Lee Jung Jae's Hunt, and on Film Club, life is embraced anew in Harold and Maud. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Anna Bogatskaya and Lillian Crawford. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Sankus. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.